Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello? It is I, Dr. Wolfenstein. What is up with all those hands? They're not attached to anything. I know, right? My clapping hands won second prize at the 2015 Mad Scientist Convention in Bucharest. The judges said I was mad. They said I was demented and depraved. But in a good way? Exactly. Now, who are you and why are you here? Are you the guy whose head I'm removing at 10.30? You are really early. Wait, what? No, I'm your new assistant. The agency sent me over? What's your name? Ethan. Or Austin. I use both. I'm binomial. It was super trending at Kenyon. No, no, no. Your name has to be Igor or Flexor or Creepor. I can't have a lab assistant named Mason. Ethan. Or Austin. What did you study at Kenyon? Gender bakery sciences? With a minor in Canadian popular music. You're one of those repulsive, useless people who's been congratulated since he was born, aren't you? Yes. I mean, I'm a millennial, if that's what you're saying. Well, you're hired, but only because I'm desperate. Okay, here's what you do every morning before you come here. Go to the university dissecting room, grab any body parts you can find, go to the mortuary, same thing, and then go to the slaughterhouse. From there, all I want are pig hearts and monkey brains. Then, are you looking at your phone? Just a sec. My friend Samantha is going through just the worst time with this sketchy boyfriend of hers. I'm just support texting her. She's... I, I... Look at me! Do you know what I was doing when I was your age? I had already transplanted bat wings onto a spitting cobra. That sounds awesome. Well, it kind of backfired and my insurance rates went up, but that's a long story. The point is that I need your total attention. It's just that, in terms of my hashtag goals, I'm not super motivated by what you're saying. Like, if you could make it seem more like a fun project, that would be exciting for me. My life coach says I need a mood normative environment in order to be my best me. Huh. I I never really gave much thought to that. I, I've, I've had so many assistants and they all died gruesome deaths, but I never really thought about whether they loved their jobs or if they were having any fun. Wait. This is what you people do, isn't it? You make it my burden to get you to want to do your job. Get out! Come back tomorrow with Samantha's sketchy boyfriend's brain. Okay. Aren't you forgetting something? What? First day of work trophy? I'm leaving. I hate 2017. Today on the show, listen to stories from when this kind of thing was fun. For the scientist. And now the bride of Mothra, Colin McEnroe. Poor Dr. Wolfenstein. Um, All right, so we are going to be talking about Frankenstein today, uh, and we are going to be talking about its persistence as a story, although I think we have to begin with the fact that it's a story that we think we know, uh, but we don't know its origins anywhere near as well as we might imagine, unless we are people who read 
a lot of literature from the Romantic period of the early 19th century. Uh, anyway, uh, to do this, uh, we are going to be talking to uh, Eddie Von Mueller, writer, former lecturer of film and media studies at uh, Emory, Emory University and uh, co-editor of Frankenstein, How a Monster Became an Icon, and his other co-editor of Frankenstein, How a Monster Became an Icon, uh, Sidney Perkowitz, Charles Howard uh, Candler, professor of physics emeritus at Emory University as well. And they are joining us from the Emory Broadcasting Studios. So I, I think before we delve into the origins, I'm going to ask each one of you what you're doing. And Eddie, I'll start with you. What you're doing uh, compiling a Frankenstein book. I mean, you must uh, have a special relationship with this story. Uh, when did you imprint like a baby duck on Frankenstein? Was there a particular movie or moment uh, that, that made you do this? Baby Duck is is the mot juste, Colin. I, I think like uh, a lot of nerds, as a kid, I gravitated towards uh, this handful of genres, you know, science fiction, fantasy, horror. And I actually remember seeing James Whale's 1931 Universal film of Frankenstein on uh, a black and white 12-inch television. It was airing late one Halloween uh, on a, a little public television station in Denver, Colorado, and they showed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and uh, as, a, as a sort of Halloween double feature. And Frankenstein, uh, as a figure, never really appealed to me as a kid, but the monster did. The monster was, was uh, a character with whom I could really empathize and for whom I'm occasionally mistaken in supermarkets. <laughs> But uh, you know, from a from a really early age, I I got enchanted with this creature, uh, and with the bicentennial of the publication of Mary Shelley's novel coming up, uh, I was approached by my my good friend and colleague uh, Sidney Perkowitz uh, with this idea of doing sort of a mashup of perspectives. So, how about you, uh, Dr. Sidney Perkowitz? Was it, in fact, the 1931 Universal Pictures Frankenstein that that set your mind and heart aflutter, or, or was it something else? Oh, that was the that was the first push, just as Eddie says. But then it got more serious later. I wrote a book called Digital People about various forms of artificial life, and to tell that story, I had to tell the Frankenstein story. So I I dug into it a little bit. And then when I heard this bicentennial was coming along, I really got revved up. I said to myself, let's do an anthology. I don't want to write the whole book. That's going to be a lot of work. Maybe I can suck Eddie into taking half of the work to edit it. And he said yes, and the result is we did a book. So it started the same way. The, the nerd love of science fiction, fantasy, horror, all of that in one big lump with, with the monster Frankenstein's, mo Frankenstein's monster taking the leading role, and then it turned into a real professional commitment. That also was fun along the way. So, you know, one of the essays in your book uh, talks about this as a story that we almost know, the way that we almost know the words of the national anthem, that we almost know Hamlet. Um, uh, there's a lot of parallels, I, I think, between this and Sherlock Holmes in the sense that the, all the tropes, many of the tropes that we associate with Sherlock Holmes are not the work of Arthur Conan Doyle, but the stage adaptations that were done later, particularly by the actor William Gillette. And so here we almost know the story of Frankenstein, except that so many of the tropes here, including 
some of the ones you heard in that intro, are simply not in the original work. As one of your, as the same essay says, there's no named monster, there's no lab, there's no assistant, there's no village mayhem, uh, there's no big, huge, you know, bolts of electricity, uh, Van de Graaff uh, generators and lightning and stuff like that. So um, none of that, all that stuff gets, gets added later. It's all the stuff that we have completely assembled in our mind as the picture. But so we need to talk about how, the, the origins of this. And so, um, Eddie, anybody who's ever been stuck in a rented summer cottage uh, in really bad weather can maybe sympathize with the plight in which almost 200 years ago, as Sydney just suggested, um, Mary Godwin found herself. She's there with her fiancé. Um, who, of course, is Percy Shelley. Uh, and then Lord Byron shows up. He's mad, bad, and dangerous to know, as someone once said about him. Uh, and so that's all very exciting, except that there's terrible weather. Um, there's some interesting reasons for the terrible weather. And so what do they do? They start making up spooky stories? Was, is that what happened? Yeah, and, and uh, you, you left out one more, uh, one more person at this, this crazy house party, who's a guy named um, Polidori, John Polidori. And his story that comes out of this weekend is called The Vampire, and it becomes the first modern vampire story. Really what these are is this is like a group of sort of swinging bohemians in early 19th century terms. Um, They're creative people. They're all part of sort of this literary smart set. And basically, like you say, stranded and and, uh, in, in Geneva or... Well, in, in Switzerland, in any event, they they get involved in this sort of literary game of of coming up with with scary stories, and and one of the fun things about this this origin story, especially given the stature that the novel has eventually um, has eventually acquired, you know, this is this is this is like a bar bet. This mm-hmm. is like a party game. This starts with bored young people, probably fairly loaded, um, playing around with with the ideas that frighten them. And yet from this fateful house party, uh, one of the enduring tales of modernity is born and 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 born from a, the, the imagination of an admittedly extraordinary teenage girl, but still a, a teenage girl. It's it's crazy. Right. She's 18 years old. She's about to marry Percy Shelley. She doesn't marry him, I think, until that December. Um, and and so, yeah. And some of these people were kind of famous, too. I mean, so much so that the, the neighborhood around the villa was kind of a Twitter. Uh, and people thought that there must be, you know, wild sex games going in the, on there, especially given Byron's uh, reputation. Instead, what they're doing is this. And so, you know, um, Sidney Perkowitz, one thing. So Mary Shelley, in, uh, in putting all this stuff together, or Mary Godwin at that moment, in putting all this stuff together, she She's mining a whole bunch of ideas that are kind of out there right now. And one of them, I think, is that the notion that we're in a time of scientific foment, but there's not necessarily quite a canonical idea of what science is right then. In other words, there's things that are pretending or, or insisting that they are science, but some of them have different statuses, right? I, we don't. There isn't a way to kind of academize the whole thing. So there are all kinds of kind of... Some of, the, some of the ideas about science going on right now, right at that point, are a little bit quacky. Some are quacky, but some you can say, well, they just did not understand what was going on. So we take electricity totally for granted now. You just flip a switch and there it is. It was a very mysterious force then. 
People thought it might even induce life. There was some reason to think along those lines. Not very good reasons, but some reasons. So there was real science, but it was a formative time. Uh, They were just coming out of a period when science hadn't even quite been given that name. It was still natural philosophy. Now it became science. Mary Shelley herself was not a scientific type. The people around her were not, although a Percy actually had fooled around with electricity quite a lot in college. He was famous for having electrical apparatus in his dorm room. We all were. Which, and yeah. we, which we still do, only now we play music with it. He was trying to create life with it. Not really, but he was interested in electricity. So all of that was rolling. The other thing to remember is early 19th century, the Industrial Revolution is gathering steam. So the whole idea of a technology that might really be important for the world was being born. And that surely played a role in everyone's thinking about what was going on, not in an overt, open way. Mary Shelley didn't sit down and say, well, I'm going to stick in some technology here. But it was all there in the background for sure. All right. So some of that um, interest in electricity uh, survives uh, into the very different um, in 1931. By no means the first film adaptation, by the way, but 1931 uh, film that so many people did imprint on. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Dr. Henry, not Victor for some reason, Dr. Henry Frankenstein uh, talking to Dr. Waldman about his intention to create life. Dr. Waldman, I learned a great deal from you at the university about the violet ray, the ultraviolet ray which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong. Here in this machinery, I have gone beyond that. I have discovered the great ray that first brought life into the world. Oh, and your proof? Tonight you shall have your proof. At first I experimented only with dead animals, and then a human heart, which I kept beating for three weeks. But now, I'm going to turn that ray on that body and endow it with life. All right. So, so, so there's that that notion of science and that notion um, uh, of uh, of electricity and and so Sidney Perkowitz. I mean, there's a way in which uh, you can draw a rather peculiar and jagged line from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, to a Dr. Galvin to to all this. Right? There's. Uh, uh, tell us about that. It's a great story, and I actually didn't know it until one of our contributors sent in a cartoon about it. So he summarized the whole thing in a one-panel cartoon, which is terrific. Uh, around 1740, everyone, every American at least knows this story, Ben Franklin almost killed himself by sending up a kite with a key to show that lightning was electrical. That was a big deal at the time. He was considered a major researcher in electricity. His uh, report of that experiment was translated into Italian a couple of decades later, and that was read by a gentleman named Luigi Galvani, who had been working with electricity and also knew something about dead frogs. I don't quite know where that came from, but there it was. He put the two thoughts together and was the first person to understand, which we now know for sure is 100% true, bioelectricity is a big part of how living things function. So we went from Franklin to Galvani. After Galvani, a nephew of his, a real go-getter, had the idea, well, if electricity is that powerful, I can go around Europe and animate dead people. People will pay to see that. Sure enough, he tried to do that, and sure enough, people paid to see it. He didn't really animate somebody, but if you take a dead body and give it a jolt of a few hundred volts, it'll jump. 
And that was good enough to convince people that he was making life happen. So that's the next link in the chain. And then right after that, we have Mary Shelley. Again, no expert on electricity, no scientist, but picking up what was in the cultural air at the time and thinking this could be part of the book and then go one more step to 1931, the Frankenstein film that we all know. Someone on the production side who was thinking of special effects said, man, if we can get a big bolt of lightning in this movie, that'll be a killer scene. And indeed it was. That's how it worked out. All right. So, Eddie, so we've got science on the one hand, and we've got a lot of other things going on, maybe sort of on the humanities front uh, a little bit. I mean, one thing we have going on is romanticism. So we, and we've got some notable romantics right there in the villa. Um, and and there's so within romanticism, and we're not at all far from Goethe creating his Faust. It's hard to say when Goethe created Faust because it took him like 47 years to write it or something. But so, you, I mean, you've got these kinds of stories, right, about these kind of um, – uh, geniuses who don't necessarily follow the rules, who uh, who are emboldened by by inspiration, you know, by powerful surges of inspiration, and that's kind of a dangerous combination, right? If you you know if you let Lord Byron be a scientist, he's probably not going to be a very responsible one. It, it's it's so interesting because uh, Mary Shelley is a radical thinker from a line of radical thinkers. Uh, her father is one of the founders of the anarchist movement. Um, her mother, who, who died when she was just an infant, her, her mother was one of the first sort of feminist thinkers. And it's a really revolutionary time. It's important to remember that, that both the American Revolution and uh, more dramatically the French Revolution is really recent history at, at this moment. And that idea of a sort of uh, radicalized individualism is is part and parcel of the romantics and so when we when we look at frankenstein the the doctor dr frankenstein uh who is very very different in almost all the films than he is in the in the the book you do see this compelling portrait of genius run amok of sort of what happens when that radical individualism is carried to, to dangerous extremes. And it's, it's a really ambiguous portrait that she makes, right? Because on the one hand, there's a lot about uh, Victor Frankenstein in the novel that makes him sort of the, the ultimate romantic hero. He's an iconoclast. He doesn't play by the rules. He is, uh, he is passionate about his art or his science to the expense of all other considerations. But at the same time, morally, he's, he's a monster. And it's really intriguing to, to sort of think what were the meanings for, uh, for Mary, who's hanging out with Percy Shelley and with, as you say, Lord Byron, uh, her perspective on these men and this romantic notion of of the human creative force liberated from sort of morality and mores, it's it's interesting to to think what what was she saying to the to the men in her life and to this moment that she's living through, because a lot of great things are coming out of this. 
Right. I think um, she. I think she's kind of. I mean, you also sort of wonder just how fed up she was with these guys being stuck in this villa for this long, you know. And and I think she's kind of sticking romanticism up their butts a little bit, saying, you know what, this doesn't always come out so great. Um, yeah, no, in fact, in fact, she's saying this never comes out great. Yeah. This always ends badly. But you know, there's a little more nuance to that. Uh, and again, it's Mary Shelley's genius to put this in. It isn't made a, a big part of the book, but it's there. When Dr. Frankenstein in the book is thinking about building a monster, he doesn't think of it that way. He's thinking of creating an improved human being. So it's actually not all that different, not at all different from modern genetic engineering, which always justifies itself by saying, we'll cure disease, maybe we can make a better human being, maybe we can make people smarter and stronger. I agree that mostly Dr. Frankenstein is a self-absorbed kind of guy built on top of a bunch of male privilege. All of that is in there. But he had some ethical strands in his thinking, too. He hoped for the best, but he didn't make it work. He didn't execute it very well. Well, Sidney, Sydney, his goal is to make something beautiful, too. I mean, it, it's right. it, that's one Good of the ways point. in which everything that we understand about Frankenstein today, starting with our visual image, departs considerably right. from what's being talked about here. He, he doesn't want to make a monster in that conventional sense. He wants right. to make a thing of beauty. But he, he also wants to make a laborer. Right. He wants to make a creature that can endure the cold, a creature that can can live under very difficult circumstances. And so I think I think Frankenstein is himself conflicted. He wants to make beauty, he wants to make perfection, but he also doesn't want to be challenged. Right? right. It's 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 a really it's a really complex and this is this is the remarkable thing to me. Um movies and television we tend to like to simplify stories, make good and evil much clearer, strip away some of that ambiguity. Uh, the novel is is deeply complex, mm-hmm. and deeply ambiguous. And, and so there's, I mean, just to go back to the thing you were saying, Eddie, too, that, that notion of making a, a worker. Um, so, I mean, first of all, yes, there's, uh, you know, I mean, also, unlike the movie, this monster if that's the right word, uh, and if we're applying it to the right character, um, this monster is uh, articulate. He's uh, very easy, good at self-educating. He starts reading. He um, he reads Paradise Lost. He quickly figures out that not only does Satan have all the good lines, but they're his lines too. There are ways in which he didn't ask to be made. He's been made. And, and Eddie, the, the terms master and slave start getting exchanged explicitly between these two characters. Yeah, uh, it, to the point where, where the the monster, uh, we'll call him the creature, because it's mm-hmm. it's ambiguous at that point whether whether his creation is more monstrous than the maker, mm-hmm. but there is a moment where where the the creature seizes the reins and basically says, you know, I'm in charge now. You're going to do what I say, or I will make your life uh, an unbearable hell, and that that uh, turning of the tables is is one of, I think, the more powerful scenes in the book. And it's left out of almost all the screen adaptations. It's 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 been in a, a few of the uh, of maybe the more more faithful ones. But um, that idea, not just that the monster is a menace to its maker, but the monster becomes its maker's master. Which I would say, and and Sydney is is better qualified to to address it. But to me, that makes me feel uh, much the way my smartphone makes me feel. Mm-hmm. 
All right. It is now the boss of me. It's a a metaphor for technology taking us over. But you know what? Although that particular master-slave reversal maybe doesn't happen in other versions of Frankenstein, it happens in most of the science fiction films we know that have synthetic beings right up to Blade Runner 2049. Mm -hmm. This is about replicants who have been made to be slaves to serve humanity, deciding they've had enough. I don't want to give away too much of a plot point for people who haven't seen it, but deciding they've had enough and it's time to uh, rebel a little bit. So that uh, image of the creature that you thought you had under control suddenly turning on you and not just becoming hostile, but actually becoming the boss is a very strong one. It's one of the other things that Frankenstein, I think, has given us. Right. The creature in the novel is not terribly different at times, maybe from Rutger Hauer in the original Blade Runner. Um, uh, It's Roy Batty. All right. So why don't we uh, take a quick break here? Uh, We'll come back with more of these guests. Towards the end of the show, we're going to tell you a story from Bridgeport, because if there were going to be a Frankenstein story in Connecticut, where else? Not Not in New Haven, certainly not. And you really believe that you can bring life to the dead? That body is not dead. It has never lived. I created it. I made it with my own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere. Go and see for yourself. Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. Thus begins the law of unintended consequences. So uh, here we go. We're talking more about Frankenstein. Our guests right now are uh, Eddie Von Mueller, a writer, former lecturer of film and media studies at Emory, uh, Sidney Perkowitz, uh, Charles Howard Candler, professor of physics emeritus at Emory. Uh, they are both the co-editors of Frankenstein, How a Monster Became an Icon. So um, t- I want to just wrap up a couple of things from our first uh, segment conversation and then kind of move on a little bit more to the uh, cinematic and pop cultural history of this. But um, so, but uh, two things that we, we kind of glided over. One of them is, you know, Sydney, I kept saying the weather was really bad, but there's sort of scientific weather reason why the weather was really bad in 1818 in this villa where Mary Godwin, soon to be Mary Shelley, is there with her future husband Percy uh, and Lord Byron. Uh, there's been, was it a volcano in Indonesia? There's some reason they call it the Summer of Darkness in Europe, right? Yes. Uh, the, uh, the, it was the year without a summer in Europe. And uh, what happened was a major volcano in Indonesia, you're right, had exploded a year or two before, considered one of the biggest eruptions ever. Whenever a volcano goes, goes off, it throws a lot of debris in the atmosphere. So this volcano did that. Debris in the atmosphere means sunlight doesn't get through very well. And the temperature all over Western and Northern Europe dropped two or three degrees and even today, we know from global warming, two or three degrees doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's huge. Mm-hmm. So that killed the summer, 
agriculture suffered terribly. There were there were uh, there was famine, especially in Ireland, but in other parts of Europe too. And among other things, there was exceptionally heavy rain. So almost for sure, the reason that this group was sitting around twiddling their thumbs until they had the idea of telling ghost stories, this is Byron and, and the rest of them and Mary Shelley and so on, is that it just didn't stop raining. Lake Como is a famous tourist spot. It's supposed to be beautiful, the area where they were, but all they had was rain, 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 and it goes back partly to that volcanic eruption. All right, so, um, Eddie, the other thing I wanted to make sure we kind of um, touched upon from our previous uh, conversation, I mean, you know, I think the other things going on, and you kind of alluded to it, is, I mean, first of all, Britain is in the middle of its debate about slavery. Um, uh, and um, and so, so there's sort of that. There's also probably a fair amount of worker unrest, maybe even circumstances that don't entirely not resemble the 2016 election, kind of a sense of people being rejected or left behind, much like the creature. Yeah, this is a this is a period of extraordinary displacement, especially in the new urban industrial sectors where this is and this is happening in Paris, it's happening in in London, it's happening very conspicuously in the United States where really for the first time in, in modern history, we have these very large numbers of people who have traveled a tremendous distance from wherever they were born. And now they are uh, sort of anonymous, generic, isolated um, laborers in, in cities and so forth. And the status of the worker is uh, an intensely debated topic. And you mentioned the debate over slavery, which is another, another facet of sort of the labor question. But one of the things that is conspicuous about the creature, and this is something that we find in almost every film version or television version of, of Frankenstein, with maybe the exception of the monsters, um, is, is that the creature is sort of associated with the working class. Mm-hmm. And it is a being that has no culture, it has no provenance, it has no place. What it has, and it has in great and dangerous abundance, it has resentment. Right. And, and it feels rejected, too. I mean, there's, I mean, in the, in the novel, anyway, the emotional rejection that this creature feels. I mean, you know, Dr. Victor Frankenstein is kind of the worst single dad ever. Um, no, but, 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 you know, it's, it's, you're right. He's, he's, he's in part the bad dad who rejects his offspring, but he's also the bad elite who refuses to acknowledge that his actions created the, the situation that made this being monstrous. Mm. This is not a, a a creature that was made to be a monster. It was, in its eyes at least, forced to be a monster by the actions of its its creator. And I, I think uh, even over the course of the 19th century, this was something that, that readers sort of glom onto is the class dynamic uh, and, and this idea of alienation as a problem in the, in the modern world. And that's a problem that's only gotten worse. So um, now let's uh, jump away from the book and towards the screen, uh, Sidney Perkowitz. Um, uh, so we go about 100. We're still talking about a 200th uh, anniversary uh, of the novel. But we just go 100 years forward from, from Mary Godwin at the Lake House. We get basically, basically to the birth of the moving image. Uh, and it's really one of the, you know, we keep talking about the 1931 movie, but it's really one of the first things 
people want to make movies about, right? There's, I think, one estimate in your book that between, I think it's 1918 and 2005, something like that, that's at least 79 different filmed versions uh, of Frankenstein happened. Uh, any theories, Sydney, on why it is? I mean, is it just, you know, so ingrained in people's subconscious by that time that they'll recognize that story? It's, I think it's deeper than that. I mean, one thing that, that maybe we don't like to talk about, but if you want to get to the deepest, deepest, deepest root of what the Frankenstein story is about, it's about defeating death. Mm-hmm. Here is a person who can take random parts of a human and turn them into something that approaches being human, not wholly successful, but it's definitely alive, definitely can think and walk and move. He has created life, truly. And, and life and the creation of life was central to the myth and function of cinema. When, when we watch 1931's Frankenstein today, we're literally watching the dead. Mm-hmm. No one who made that film is, is living any longer. And if you think about what filmmakers do is they cut together a living story out of these fragments. I think there's, there's something primally cinematic about Frankenstein and something about Frankenstein that is is intrinsically cinematic. This is about making a new life out of dead fragments. And filmmakers do that every day. It's even broader than that. It's artistic. Uh, One person wanted to contribute to our anthology, but we couldn't work it out, was an artist who was inspired by the idea of stretching together body parts and wanted to make a collage what could be more obvious than that? It came together so so perfectly. Uh, I don't think we mentioned this yet, so I'll, I'll mention it. Addie may want to say more about it. 1931, the 1931 film is the film. It's the one we all have images of in our head. But 21 years before that, in 1910, Thomas Edison, who was just getting into the film business, made the first Frankenstein film. It was a short, only a few minutes. It's very blurry. There are a few scenes left. There are a couple of pictures from them in our book, in fact. But he did it. And again, it's so powerful that this is one of, one of the stories that Edison first wanted to put on film. It's really astonishing. Right. So, I, I, you know, one thing I want to talk about, and it's, I think it's in the Evan Lieberman essay in your book, um, Eddie, there's a way in which film itself is scary. Um, William Friedkin, the director, told me that when he was a little boy, he was taken to the movies for the first time, and he just sat in a, uh, one of the back rows screaming, and not because of the content on the screen, but just because of being in this dark theater with these things on the screen. And, and, and even in 31, certainly yes, with, in the case of the Edison film, but even in 31, it's a new enough technology so that Lieberman, in his essay, makes a kind of a convincing case that there's a way in which the, our sense of being shaped and assaulted by what's on the screen makes, it, makes the medium of film a perfect marriage for this kind of material. Yeah, um, it, it's, a, it's an excellent essay, and I think uh, it, it's a valuable perspective because I, I think that to us, the moving image is so ubiquitous. You know, we can watch, we can watch on our, our smartphones, we can watch on tablets. The moving image is always with us, and it has been to some extent demystified, but especially the experience of seeing films in a theater, there is something uncanny about it. And there is, and this is part of what makes horror films frightening uh, in a way that, say, a horror film viewed at home when you can stop or pause the action at will. Uh, Part of what makes a horror film frightening is the movie is something that happens to us, right? And the Mm. mechanism 
that makes the movie happen is always behind us. The projector is always behind us, throwing this spectral image in front of us. And we are at the mercy of the screen. And when we read about the visceral reactions that people had to King Kong in 1933 or to uh, Frankenstein in 1931 or the, the train arriving at a station for that matter in 1895, when we hear about people screaming or, or running in panic, it, it seems funny to us, like, what's wrong with these morons? Can't they tell it's just a screen? But the truth is that when we're alone in the dark with strangers and this thing is, is unfolding miraculously before our eyes, we are, we are at the mercy and mesmerized by what we're seeing. And, and that, I think, does sync up very nicely. And it's a, an image we see in a lot of the films, this sort of whether it's a victim or sometimes it's, it's Victor Frankenstein himself or sometimes, you know, it's a peasant girl or whatever. We see somebody staring in sort of dumbstruck horror at the spectacle of the monster who is frequently not, you know, it's not like the alien and aliens. It's not ripping anybody's heads off. But there is a way in which the, the monster becomes a sort of hypnotizing spectacle. And it, I, I think it's a really powerful, it's a powerful thing that maybe we're losing now, but it's certainly been part of the cinematic century. I can certainly tell you that my mother, uh, as a girl, saw that uh, 1933 King Kong uh, she in a movie theater. She was uh, living then as a girl in a small New England town, and she was unable to walk home from it. She got about a few blocks away from the movie theater, and she was paralyzed. She was so afraid, uh, and her father had to come get her. He was not pleased uh, about this whole idea that some stupid movie about a gorilla would make her that afraid, but people were that afraid at movies uh, a lot then because, yeah, the technology was, as you say, uncanny. So, um, Sidney Perkowitz, we're kind of running out of time here, but, um, you know, in some ways, obviously, there's been uh, um, a dilution <laughs> a little bit of this story, right? I mean, it's just, it's it's ubiquitous. It's been turned into comedy so much. I mean, some of the comedy, the Abbott and Costello stuff uh, is is maybe, as one of your essays says, a little bit close to the scary stuff. There's uh, There are ties between laughter uh, and fear. But, you know, I mean, the more and more uh, that Mel Brooks and Saturday Night Live and things like that get a hold of this, I'm sort of wondering, do you think it still has the its original power or is that power transmuted into maybe a way in which we talk about our own environments. You know, we worry about Franken-food or something like that. It's definitely changed, and, and diluted, I think, is a good word, but I think it's gained a different kind of power because we're now over the first shock of science having hit us, and the first shock was, oh, my God, it's here. What are we going to do? And that was a, an instantaneous reaction. Now we're more thoughtful, so we see technology bearing down on us, whether it's the next smartphone or genetic engineering or what, or what have you. And some people now realize that we need to stop and think about this. And we're looking for ways to think about it. It's one of the great powers of science fiction in general, and the Frankenstein story in particular, that it gives you a framework to look at what may be coming and maybe even begin to begin to scope out where it might take society. So I think that's a new power for the story. It's not as scary. It doesn't raise goosebumps. But in the long run, it might be much more important because it forces us to think about 
the ethics of what the scientists are doing? Does our society really want this? Is it a runaway train that we can't stop or there are even some choices? And really, all of that is embedded in the story. Now we just expand it and apply it, for instance, to the whole, uh, to the whole uh, biological industry. Where is biological technology taking us? So that's a new power. We've lost some terror, but maybe we've gained some wisdom from it. Well, thanks so much to Sidney Perkowitz and to Eddie Von Mueller. They are the uh, co-editors of this very interesting anthology, How a Monster Became an Icon, uh, Frankenstein, that is, How a Monster Became an Icon, the science and alluring, enduring allure of Mary Shelley's creation. We're going to take a break now. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you a specific Connecticut Frankensteinian story. What are you eating? Frankenberry. It's the best cereal. Ethan, or, or Austin, are you trying to drive a dagger through my heart? You think I don't wake up every day knowing I don't have a monster cereal named after me? I am so sorry, Dr. Wolfenstein. My bad. You bet it is. Today's show was produced by Dr. Victor Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish was surgically grafted onto Andrew Bird. Our intern is Sarah Bly. Voiceover help by Kevin McDermott. The part of Bill Curry was played by Al Franken. On tomorrow's show, there's still a space station. What's going on up there? And now, back to Colin. Right. So we promised you that we would uh, end this uh, story of Frankenstein with uh, the closest thing that we could find. And it actually is pretty close to a Connecticut version uh, of this story. So joining us now uh, is Michael Balava. Uh, he is a historian, uh, poet, author of several books, including Wicked New Haven and Wicked Bridgeport. He's also a uh, youth services uh, librarian at the at Bridgeport Public Library uh, and many more things as well, I am sure. But uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation, sir. Thank you very much, Colin. So uh, you're going to tell us the story of uh, George Porter, uh, and uh, perhaps specifically someone that George tried, well, I mean, kind of to reanimate. But tell us who George Porter was first. Uh, Dr. George Loring Porter uh, was an American hero. Uh, he was a surgeon during the Civil War, and he saved many lives on the battlefield. And after he left uh, the service, he, he uh, came to live in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and he was a leading light here. He helped incorporate the Bridgeport Hospital. He was one of the dedication speakers at the Barnum Museum. He was a man about town who people really sought after as a public speaker, uh, physician, surgeon, and just an all-around great guy who happened also to want to become involved with raising the dead. Right. So we talked earlier in the show about galvanism, uh, this uh, discovery really of the electrical currents in mm -hmm. the body by Luigi Galvin, uh, which, by the way, is still around. It usually is given a different name these days. Uh, if you know anybody who's involved with Scientology who owns an e-meter, uh, that actually is measuring, measuring slight uh, fluctuations in the galvanic uh, skin current. But so, so Dr. Porter, is, he's very interested, uh, right, Michael, in, in this notion of galvanism. He's very interested in it. And while he was here in Bridgeport, uh, it was following the execution of a Sherman, Connecticut resident uh, by the name of Edwin Hoyt. Uh, Edwin had, um, uh, in a fit of rage, murdered his father, stabbed him with a butcher knife into, the, into his throat, and um, was brought to trial. Uh, most folks felt that Edwin was insane, but uh, the verdict was carried out, and he was hung from the neck until dead. What, what was going to happen, 
unknown, un, unbeknownst to Edwin, was that Dr. Porter and other local physicians and surgeons had arranged uh, the site of the execution. The gallows were located at the North Avenue Jail in Bridgeport, and uh, in the West Yard, which, 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 by the way, all these years later, Edwin was executed in 1880. That area is still known by some as the Gallows Yard. Dr. Porter and the other physicians uh, removed Edwin from the rope after he was hanging there for about 39 minutes. They placed him on top of a coffin lid, and they raced him back into the jail, up the stairs to the second floor, where they had arranged a laboratory with uh, a galvanic battery to see if they could raise him from the dead. When, uh, there was a group of uh, physicians and surgeons. There were guards, of course, in, in case he should raise from the dead. When somebody asked, if he does come back, will he go free? And at first, people were guffawing about the thought, but but then the room fell silent. One of the problems, of course, is that um, uh, Edwin, the prisoner, uh, had, as many people are as when they are hanged, a broken neck. So, I mean, you're shooting some electricity through somebody, even if it worked in other ways. That was that was the problem with Edwin Hoyt's experiments, that uh, after his execution, they first thought that it was just a dislocated neck, that his spine hadn't been broken. When they applied the, the, um, the electric charges and he opened his eyes, and he was staring out at the, uh, the, uh, the folks who were in the audience, that they were taken aback. They figured that maybe he is going to become resuscitated, reanimated to life. Uh, he thrashed his arms around. He even went so far as pointing accusedly at some of the individuals who had assembled. It just freaked everybody out in the crowd. Um, they, they resuscitated. Well, it looked like he was breathing. In fact, when they held the candle to his lips, he blew the candle out. When they had applied the electrodes to his um, to um, his lungs and his diaphragm, when the when the experiments didn't result in him rising from the table, they reexamined the body and they found then, as you said, Colin, that his his spine, his neck had been snapped and broken. All they said they needed was another fresh specimen to experiment on. And they waited uh, eight years or so, right? And eight then they got years. Them. It was eight years uh, in uh, October of 1888 that uh, Philip Palladino, who had uh, murdered his brother Francisco over a loan, and um, uh, Philip was put on trial again in Bridgeport and was executed uh, in the gallows yard at the North Avenue Jail in Bridgeport. Uh, folks, who were, folks who had assembled for that execution were expecting Dr. Porter and the others to uh, try to experiment on the corpse again. And uh, there are stories that there was a, a riot had broken out in the gallows yard, that Father Leo was trying to keep the, uh, the, the physicians and the crowd back from the corpse who was in a simple uh, plain pine coffin. Uh, they didn't want anybody coming close to the body to remove him for those same uh, galvanic experiments, which also brought to uh, a possible life the rumors that Philip had survived the hanging with a, a brace that had been inserted under his clothing in a secret society was going to help Philip escape. And there were rumors for, oh gosh, weeks afterwards in the New York papers and in the New Haven papers that Philip was actually alive, that he had survived the hanging. Um, the whole time, the physicians were focusing on acquiring the body, which was to be interred at St. Augustine Cemetery in Bridgeport. And... Uh, to stop that, to pause the, uh, the resurrection men or the sack them ups the ghouls from removing Philip from the ground, they had posted a sentry. Father Leo and the Italian community had sent somebody there overnight to ensure that nobody was coming to remove Philip's body for those experiments. Right. So um, 
we first of all should say the good news is that nothing weird or unsavory ever happened again in Bridgeport after this. No, that's just kidding. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing about Dr. Porter is, I mean, it's we're making him sound like a mad scientist, which, uh, you know, I think by some uh, accounts, maybe he, he would seem like that. But he wasn't really regarded that way then, right? He was, you know, I mean, he was president oh, no. of the Medical Association. Absolutely. Yeah. He was a respected member of, uh, of the community and, and, a, and a highly regarded surgeon. As I mentioned, his, his, um, his battlefield bravery, her, his heroics there. And he relocated to Bridgeport. Uh, uh, a good friend of his, another doctor, Dr. Hubbard, strongly suggested he relocate here because... Um, he was an outstanding doctor. They wanted somebody also, you know, in addition to Hubbard Porter here to relocate to Bridgeport with his family. Totally respected. And um, the, the papers sometimes uh, played it up when they were uh, covering the New York papers and the uh, Connecticut papers when they were recounting the experiments. But when Dr. Porter delivered his reports, it, it didn't help when um, the flowery Victorian language that was being used that they were on the very portals of the doorway of the mysteries of life and death. And they really were certain that they could reanimate uh, these corpses if, again, they just had uh, fresh material, uh, i.e. an individual without a broken back. Right. Very quickly, we're, we've only got about a minute left here, but uh, Dr. Porter had led a very interesting life prior to all this. Uh, his life even crossed the paths uh, of John Wilkes Booth. Explain that connection, if you could, Michael. Dr. Porter, as I opened it, an American hero, a really strange life. He was the person who was the medical individual in charge of the, uh, the, in, the co-conspirators involved with the Lincoln assassination. And uh, Link, uh, Booth's body had been secreted in the river, a swampy area outside of Washington, D.C., very publicly so folks could see where Booth's body was being just unceremoniously dumped in a swamp. In reality, in reality, Dr. Porter, George Porter, had possession of John Wilkes Booth's body, and he was given the orders from uh, Secretary of War Stanton to secure Booth's remains in the uh, floor of the warehouse of the old Washington arsenal. And he said that he would take that secret to the grave. But being that there were dueling John Wilkes Booth corpses, rumors started to arise that Booth had really survived, and he had escaped, and he was living somewhere in the United States. So eventually Porter was coming out and saying, no, he was deceased. I helped bury the real body of John Wilkes Booth. And we're going to have to end it there. Michael Balava, a historian, poet, author of several books, including Wicked New Haven and Wicked Bridgeport. And it's been a wicked good show. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow. Dr. Wolfenstein, the monster is woke. It's alive. I don't know about that kind of woke, but he's definitely aware of inclusivity and questions of gender and race. That kind of woke. What are you talking about? I think he's able to check his white monster privilege. He's green, and you're fired. Again? That's four times this morning.